on Trinity Sunday, we dare to tread on holy ground. <laughs> As Jesus was talking about to speak of heavenly things. We are invited uh, with the church throughout the ages and around the world to fill our hearts and our minds with holy thoughts of God's inner life and beauty and bliss as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we do this, we realize that this is an immensely rich privilege to know God is the joy of the human heart. And yet we also know that this is a privilege that is beyond our finite and fallen human capacities. Our hearts and our minds must be graced, must be anointed and purified and strengthened and humbled by the Holy Spirit, who alone searches and knows and makes known the deep things of God's life to us. We're reminded by the Holy Spirit that to meditate on the Godhead, the three persons of the Holy Trinity, is indeed to dare to walk through the Garden of Eden again. It's to dare to ascend Mount Zion with Moses. It's to, attend, uh, to dare to approach the burning bush. We dare not do so unless we are invited by God himself. Unless we're assisted by God himself. For, says St. Augustine, nowhere is a mistake more dangerous, or the search more laborious, or the discovery more advantageous than when we contemplate the Holy Trinity. And so would you join me as we pray before we continue our reflections? Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture readings today from Isaiah chapter 6 and John chapter 3 invite us to contemplate the mystery of the Holy Trinity from the vantage point of two particular divine attributes or perfections. Isaiah chapter 6 holds before us the the glimmering and shimmering luster of divine holiness, and John, the tenderness and the warmth of divine love. In God, holiness and love can never be pitted against one another. Isaiah 6 and John chapter 3 can never be separated from one another. Because in God, holiness and love are not competing desires or warring impulses. That's a common view in the church. But in God, there is no confusion. There is no tension in his life. His life is a perfect harmony, a perfect peace that knows wholeness like we human beings have never known wholeness before. So God is the Holy One, fully and completely, a consuming fire, pure and unapproachable light. And he is love, fully and completely, a humble servant, pure and undiluted goodness and faithfulness. God is both all the time in himself and in every relationship he has towards his creation. Holiness and love are identical in him. They are not just an aspect of who he is. They are who he is from eternity past to eternity present and who he always will be. God is holy love. He is loving holiness. 
And on Holy Trinity Sunday, we adore the fact that this is who God is. So let's press in just a little closer. Isaiah chapter 6, divine holiness. What do the seraphim mean when they cry, holy? What do they mean? Three times they cry out in verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the rest of Isaiah's vision is, in a sense, meant to unpack this threefold cry of the seraphim. And it does so by fleshing out God's holiness in terms of his otherness and his fullness and his tenderness. It begins with God's otherness. God is holy other. He is above all things. Verse 1, we're told that Adonai, that's the title that is used for Lord there, a title of royal sovereignty. Adonai sits on the throne, poised and positioned for divine judgment. And verse 1, he is high and lifted up. He is unrivaled in his position of authority in the cosmos. And yet when we pause for a moment to actually ask ourselves, like, what is it that we see of this God who sits on the throne? We realize, surprisingly, that other than the hem of his robe, there is no direct description of the God on the throne. We're told more about those who surround the throne than of the one who sits upon the throne. And even the seraphim who surround the Holy One, they veil their faces in his presence with their wings so that they do not directly look into the purity of his being. There is here in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 a certain theological reserve, a certain reticence to speak of the Holy One directly, lest humans talk too much and forget the otherness of God. So what we first discover in our passage is that God is holy, and that means in a very real sense he is incomparable, inexhaustible, incomprehensible, and in, in some sense indescribable. He transcends all creaturely categories and limitations and even the seraphim cannot stare him directly in the face. Yet it's precisely because of God's otherness that he can be so fully present to his creation. That's the second aspect of his holiness. Side by side with his otherness is this sense of his fullness. He is fully present to his creation, even though he is other than it. And he fills everything that he comes into contact with. So three times this Hebrew root word for filling occurs in our passage, giving a sense of the expansiveness of the one who sits on the throne. His majesty is so expansive that his robe fills the temple, verse 1. His glory pervades all creation, verse 3. And smoke, which in the Old Testament is a symbol for God's kind of revealing presence, making himself known. God's revealing presence fills the temple in verse 4. God is so great, we're being told, that he is all-encompassing and he fills every aspect of the creation into which he comes into contact. And it's this contact that brings us to the third aspect of his holiness. Not just his otherness, not just his fullness, but he comes into contact with unholy creation. And this is the tender part of God's holiness. God is unexpectedly tender in this passage. He touches that which is unclean and does not destroy it. 
Woe is me, says Isaiah, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amidst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice how in the presence of the Almighty, Isaiah becomes deeply aware of his personal and corporate unholiness. And this is one of the paradoxical truths of the Christian life that we see. The more we experience God, the more we know of, of his holiness and, and his otherness and his fullness, the more aware we become of our own and our community's unworthiness before him. I mean, I just think of the Apostle Paul, like, it's hard to imagine anybody who understands the grace of God more and the love of God more than the Apostle Paul. And yet, when you look at his letters, you see a progression in his self-understanding. He begins by acknowledging and calling himself the least of all the apostles. And by the end of the life, he's saying, I am the worst of all sinners. He goes from least of all apostles to worst of all sinners. And that's as he is maturing in his understanding of the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this particular instance, it's sins of speech that are particularly painful for Isaiah as he's in the presence of the Holy One. He hears the seraphim cry out, holy, 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 in pure speech. And Isaiah recognizes as he hears their cry that his speech has been impure and the speech of his community has been impure. And I think this is helpful for us after this last season of political turmoil and, and COVID to just acknowledge that we have said things and things have been said that cannot be unsaid. And things have not been said. We have been silent when we should have said something. I'm reminded of James chapter 3 as I think about our social media discourse. Brothers and sisters, with your tongue you bless God and yet you curse your, your neighbor who is made in the image of God. These things should not be. There's this experience as we come into the holy presence of God like Isaiah and we hear the seraphim cry out, holy, 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 that we become also aware of the unholiness of our own speech. And yet the holiness of God does not destroy our capacity to speak. <laughs> In a moment of surprise, one of the seraphim takes a burning coal from the fiery altar of God's throne and holds it with tongs because it's too holy for even the seraphim to touch. And yet brings that coal directly up and touches Isaiah's unclean lips. It says, behold, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. The sin is consumed, and yet the sinner is left clean. What we discover is that God's holiness as a consuming fire does not simply mean that he consumes sin. It means that the burning embers from his altar purify, they atone, they make holy. And so what we discover is that God's holiness is not tarnished or tainted by coming into contact with human unholiness. And this would have been a really common view in the ancient world. It still is in, in many parts in the world today. Rather, God's holiness makes holy. And this is what astonished the crowds and religious leaders of Jesus' day. 
Jesus was not afraid of coming into contact with a leper. He was not afraid of a woman who had a, a discharge of blood for 12 years to be touched by her. He was not afraid of, of an adulterer uh, to, to touch his feet and anoint his feet. Jesus was not afraid of coming into contact with what was considered unclean in the ancient world. Because he knew that he would not be made unclean. Rather, he would be the one who makes that person clean. And so you can see that that aspect of the holiness is a, it comes into contact with unholiness. And instead of being made unclean, it makes clean. Is precisely what undergirds the tenderness of Jesus with people. He is able to look people in the face who no one else wants to look in the face. He's able to draw near to people that nobody else wants to be near. And to see in them the image of the living God. So we discover in Isaiah's passage in the Gospels that divine holiness is revealed not simply as an otherness and as a fullness, but as a purifying and a healing tenderness. And it's this last aspect of divine holiness that, that pushes us, that presses us to contemplate the second perfection of God this morning, divine love. John chapter 3, verse 16, you know it well. For God so loved the world, or be better said, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, should not be destroyed but have eternal life. What we discover in John chapter 3 is that the concrete form of God's holy love for the world is a Trinitarian act of self-giving. The Father sends the Son to the world, gives the Son to the world, and the Son reveals the Father's heart for the world. The Father expresses himself to the world in everything that the Son is and does as, as a human being. And the Son's uh, entire life of love in response to the Father represents the Father's love for the world to the world. And so it's, it's, it's no mistake that in order to, if we believe in Christ, the great gift that is given to us is eternal life. Because in the Gospel of John, to have eternal life is not simply to live forever. It is to enter into a unique quality of life that only God knows and that only God can give. To have eternal life is simply to experience the inner dynamism of the loving relationship between the Father and the Son to be swept up by grace into the eternal life of the triune God. That's why in John chapter 14, Jesus says, You will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will receive, reveal myself to him. And we, my Father and I, will come to him and make our home in him. To have eternal life is to get swept up into the relationship of the Father and the Son in Christ. And this is part of the mystery, the Trinitarian mystery, that the church ponders and cherishes in her heart like Mary. 
On Trinity Sunday, we declare that God's holy triune life is open to us in Christ. That his, his holy triune love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That we, unclean and unholy and unloving creatures, are invited to experience his rest and to be at home in his holy presence. Augustine once said, the fullness of our happiness beyond which there is none else is this, to enjoy God the three in whose image we are made. And so on Trinity Sunday, we look back at the last six months of salvation history that we have celebrated beginning with Advent, going through Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Holy Week and Easter and Pentecost. And we declare that the purpose of all of it was that God's inner life would be opened up to us, that we should become familiar with who he is, that we should experience within our very being, in our hearts, in our minds, in our imaginations, with all of our senses, what it means to say that God is holy love and loving holiness. Isaiah was right to cry out, woe is me. But we are now right to cry out, worthy is the Lamb. The seraphim were right to cry out, holy, 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 and we are cry, we're right to cry out now, Abba, Father. The heavenly hosts were, were right to hide their faces from the presence of the holy God. And someday we will be right to stare God in the face with unveiled vision. My brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.